Hi, this is Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for jumping into our podcast. Over the next three months, our new series is called Lineage, and we're going to walk through major characters of the Old Testament from Abraham all the way to Daniel and understand the movement of the nation of Israel. This is important because it's part of our lineage. Our lineage isn't just made up of our ethnic or national identity, but as Christians, it's primarily this Old Testament story. Abraham is the father of our faith. And in Ephesians, we learn that God is making one people, Jewish and Gentiles, into the story of lineage, of how God has called the people to himself. So I hope that as you read the Old Testament, it wouldn't just be stories of dead old Jewish guys, but you would look at it as your own ancestry, as part of your story and the story that we're continuing. Hope you enjoy our new series. All right. I was flipping through the channels a while back, and I have to say this is before COVID, but I remember on DirecTV, I was flipping channels and I came to one of those old movies uh, an 80s movie called Rocky 3, and it was just starting. Now, if you know me at all, you know that I love the Rocky series. It's actually one of my favorite uh, movie series ever, and I've seen Rocky 3 over 30 times. And as I was sitting there, I was thinking, should I waste my time? Should I do something else? She's, and, and I thought to myself, well, I'll just watch a little bit of it. And I ended up watching the whole thing. It's like my 31st time. It's such a memorable movie to me. Um, Do you remember the scene, those of you that have seen it, where Apollo Creed is training Rocky Balboa to win back the title from Clubber Lang, Mr. T. And he takes him actually to the beginning of where he started, the mean streets of L.A. And Apollo is doing that so that Rocky can get back that eye of the tiger, that determination Uh, from the beginning, that Rocky has clearly lost. So there's a scene in the movie where there's a long stretch of beach. And here, uh, Apollo is training Rocky, and they're both running as fast as they can. They're having a foot race. And as they're running, it's the 80s, so they're wearing these short shorts. You see all their muscles as they're moving. But as they're running, Rocky just quits. His heart's not in it. Uh, He's emotionally checked out because of all the reasons in the movie. You'll have to see the movie if you haven't seen it. And Apollo, angry and disgusted, he yells and he says, what's wrong with you? And he actually leaves. So now Rocky is left with his wife, Adrian. And Adrian asks him the question. She says, tell me what's wrong. And Rocky, at first, he doesn't want to share. You know, he's trying to be cool. He's trying to be a man. But she keeps persisting. Tell me what's wrong. And finally, he says, well, I'm afraid, right? I've never been afraid in all my life. And Adrian asks, well, what are you afraid of? And he continues to share, I don't want to lose what I got. And she says, well, what do you think you'll lose? And little by little, this wonderful woman, his wife, Adrian, gets Rocky to face his fear. And here we see Rocky's growth success his character growth success. And I love the next part. I I actually still get goosebumps every time I watch it, where Rocky looks at his wife and he said, how'd you get so tough? And Adrian says, well, I live with a fighter. 
And both of them, they hug and they kiss. And I can't help but get teary-eyed whenever I watch that. Because that scene, I believe, is the most important scene in the entire movie. After that scene, you see a completely new man. You hear that music. And you see that training montage where he's lifting weights. He's doing one-arm push-ups. He's doing that choreographed dance. He's on the speed bag. He's working out in the pool doing butterflies. I mean, there is an eye of the tiger that's there. And so you go back, and now he re-races Apollo Creed on the beach. And as they're running, finally Rocky wins. And they celebrate by getting in the water, jumping, uh, splashing uh, in the water in their 80s short shorts. And it's just a beautiful scene, right? Well, we all know what happens next. Cut to uh, Rocky's fight with uh, Clubber Lang, and Rocky wins the championship back uh, from Clubber Lang. You know, I watched that and I got so emotional. And this was before COVID, of course, right? That afterwards I had to go to LA Fitness and work out till 12 a.m. Uh, it just pumped me up so much. And that movie does that to me. It inspires me. It motivates me again and again and again. I love Rocky Three because I get so involved with Rocky's struggle. I want to see this character's growth success in his life. You see, in the movies, character growth success is when a person overcomes what they've been struggling with in their lives. We get a chance to see a vulnerable person, a protagonist, who actually is able to have victory over that which she was struggling with. Well, this morning, I want us to look at character growth success in our spiritual lives. And I want to do it in the area of temptation. And in our struggle with temptation. Because character growth success is when we have victory over the temptations that hold us back. Character growth success is when we conquer temptations that we are in bondage to. Character growth success is when we overcome temptations that are toxic to our lives. With Rocky, the temptation was fear. And after he overcame fear, it made him a better person. We all have those temptations, don't we? Well, in Genesis chapter 39, we come to Joseph's character growth success. And I want us to look at his victory over the area of temptation. Uh, Let's begin reading in Genesis 39. We'll begin reading in verse 1 and 2. You'll see it up uh, up on your screen. It says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt... And Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Let's stop right there. Let's, fe- let's look at how this happened. You see, when Joseph was a boy, he had a divine dream of destiny, that he was going to be used by God in a very special way. Well, his brothers hated him for sharing that dream. Not only for that, but they hated him because he was the favorite, and they were jealous of him. And they decided that they were going to kill him. But right before they were going to kill him, uh, a group of Ishmaelite slave traders came by, and the brothers thought to themselves, well, if we kill him, we're not going to get anything for him. Let's sell him to these Ishmaelite slave traders, and let's get some money out of it. So he sold into slavery, 
But God's providential hand takes him and places him as a slave in the home of one of the most powerful, most influential men in all of Egypt, whose name was Potiphar. And God allowed Joseph to be in the house of this man. Now let's look in verse 3. It says, When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, verse 4, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything he owned. Verse 5, from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and the field. Verse 6, so he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. So Joseph being smart, being talented, Joseph having strong leadership abilities and administrative gifts, quickly moved up from being a common slave to the manager of one of Egypt's greatest men. Let me share with you, this was not just because of Joseph, it was God's hand. God was providentially, sovereignly moving to move Joseph to this place. Now, let's see what happens. It gets really interesting. Verse 6, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said to him, come to bed with me. Here, Joseph was amazing in every way, and that brought the unwanted attention of Mrs. Potiphar, the original desperate housewife, who commanded Joseph and propositioned him to sleep with her. And I want you to see the response. And here we see the character growth success in Joseph. Verse 8, but he refused. That word in Hebrew is the word for being absolutely unwilling to make adamant the point that he refused. Now, I want you to see success over our temptations in this story. Uh, We want to look at some biblical principles on how to handle temptations that we come into our lives. So the first question, if we can put it up on the screen, is what makes temptation so difficult? Because you and I, we know how difficult it is. What makes temptation so difficult? Let me give you some reasons. Firstly, temptation is so difficult because it can be very natural. It can be very natural. The reason temptation is so difficult in our lives is it because it already appeals to our natural appetites. The truth about temptation is that it attacks our natural urges. It distorts it. Let me give you an example. I'm a foodie. I love food, and I'm sure many of you do too. Well, Desiring food is very natural because food is essential to life. It staves off hunger and we eat it, we're satisfied. It's so enjoyable that we do it with company, right? It's essential, but it's also enjoyable. The temptation comes when it, when, when it is twisted and distorted into gluttony, when it's twisted into drunkenness. Having a glass of wine it can be very great. Having you know, bottles and bottles of wine in one sitting is gluttony. Eating a little bit or eating enough to be full and enjoying that is great, but just piling on calories and just eating and eating because you can't control yourself, that's a sin. It's a God-given desire that's been distorted 
and it becomes a sin. And that's how temptation works in our lives. Let's look at this area of sex, uh, the area that we're looking at in Genesis 39. Very natural. And it's beautiful within the bonds of marriage. God created it not only for procreation, but also for enjoyment uh, between a husband and wife. And so sexual union is a beautiful gift from God. But temptation turns it, distorts it into something that it was never meant to be. Distorts it into fornication, into adultery. It uh, distorts it into other perversions. It's a God-given desire that's distorted to become a sin. And so let me share this with you. It was natural for a 17-year-old red-blooded male to have a desire for sex, to have this urge. But what happens is the temptation distorts it into something that could become adultery, that, 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 can, that can become um, fornication. And so the truth about temptation is that being tempted is not a sin. Many times there are natural desires, natural urges that we have. And Joseph was tempted in a very, very real way. But here's the point. He responded the right way. See, temptation and being tempted is not a sin, but responding to the temptation, right, can be. It is how we respond, our responsibility to the temptations that we face in our lives. Temptations can be very natural. Another reason why it's so difficult is temptation can come at a time of success. When we look in verse 2 through 6, we see words like Joseph prospered. He had favor. He was put in charge. He was blessed. He was promoted. He, uh, er everything was left in his care. This tells us that Joseph was very successful. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, Strengthening Your Grip, one of my favorite um, um, pastors and teachers, uh, wrote this in this book. It says, beware, we are most tempted when we are on the mountaintops. Now, why is that? Why is it that when we are successful, we are most tempted? Well, can I share with you that we're, when we're in the valleys is really when we grow the most. Have, have you ever noticed that? It's in the valleys that we are desperate for God, that our radar is up. The psalmist says, you know, I looked up from whence would come my help. My help comes from the Lord. There's no other place to look when we're desperate. We look up. It's in the valleys that we are dependent on God, that we know that it is God who will save us. It's God who's going to take care of us, and we are attuned to that. See, we're available and open to God in the valleys, to mold us and to make us into what he wants us to be. Dr. Ken did a great job last Sunday talking about surrender in the life of Joseph. We see how important it is to surrender to God. And when we're in a place of desperation, when God takes things from us, we come to a point where we just give up and we give to God. And that's the success in our lives. Well, in the valleys, we are surrendered, aren't we? But it's on the mountaintops of success that we tend to forget God. We tend to get drunk on our success. Deuteronomy chapter 8, one of my, uh, one of my life verses uh, as a warning. I have a few verses that are life verses in my life. This is a life verse of warning for me, and I read it quite frequently. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, it says this. Just listen. 
Be careful that you do not forget the Lord. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. You see, what this passage is saying, in, this con- in, in, in the context, uh, God was about to give them the land of Canaan, all of it, all of its riches. And after they receive it, God knew that their tendency would be to forget. And so success, prosperity, favor, blessing can deceive us into thinking that we're something special, that we're self-made men and women, and we brought all this for ourselves because it's on the mountaintops that we can be blinded by temptation, can't we? When we think we're strong, take heed lest we fall. Another point of what makes temptation so difficult is temptation can be irresistibly attractive. You know, when we look at this text, we can misunderstand that the reason uh, Joseph absolutely refused was because Mrs. Potiphar was an ugly old cougar, that she was just not very attractive to Joseph. But in the ancient Egyptian culture, I want you to understand this, women were seen as property of men. And so powerful men, as a mark of their status, would have a beautiful wife. That in Egypt, there were literal trophy wives. And Potiphar was one of the most influential, most powerful men in Egypt. And he would have had, and here's the implication, one of the most attractive wives of Egypt. The implication was that Potiphar had a gorgeous wife. It was his status. And this was... This was a very difficult temptation for Joseph because she was irresistible, because she was so beautiful. Now, couple this with the next truth, that temptation can be relentlessly persistent. Verse 10, and though she propositioned him day after day, keep in mind, this temptation was not a one-time thing. It was day after day. It was constant and continuous. It's one thing to rebuff a temptation once, but what happens when temptation comes at you day after day? When you're found in a season of temptation, and that happens in our lives, doesn't it? I've talked to men, I've talked to guys who uh, are, you know, dealing and struggling with uh, pornography that they had watched when they were younger, and there are times when uh, there's a season of temptation that maybe they can be... um, Maybe they can, they can resist it, you know, uh, a few times. But what happens is when it comes over and over again, I've talked to guys that said, it's, all, it's impossible. It's something that, you know, uh, I, you know it's hard to deal with. And it, it was like this with Joseph. Joseph was living, think about this, in the Playboy Mansion. A relentless temptation of this woman propositioning him. Let me share this truth with you. As Christians, God gives us a promise when we're experiencing relentless seasons of temptation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. 
so that when you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure it. Every temptation that we face is common enough that God provides a way of escape. Even in seasons of temptation, we think it's impossible. No, no one can, can uh, uh, resist uh, succumbing to it because it's so relentless. The Bible says you can endure it. By God's grace, as a child of God, with the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you have the power to have victory over temptation. But it's difficult. Let me give you another one. Temptation can be easily excused. Verse 11, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. This was the perfect opportunity to give in. You see, in order to give in to temptation, you need to buy into a lie. You need to make excuses. And you know, when we understand the story of Joseph, we understand he could have easily made convincing excuses to himself for falling into sin. He could have said, well, everyone does it in this culture. I'm not living with my family. I'm not living with the God, uh, with, with, uh, the God of Israel. I'm in Egypt, and promiscuity is accepted here. So why don't I just give in? Or I'm a slave. I could get in trouble. If I don't give in to my master's wife, she could do something to me. She could uh, slander me, and she does, right? We know the story, but he could have said, you know what? I don't want to deal with it. I'll just give her what she wants. I'll give in. Or he could have said, you know, I'm here all alone with her. There's no one else here. No one would ever know, and I could get away with it. You see, temptation can be easily excused in our lives. Let me ask the second question. Can we put it up? How did Joseph resist the temptation then? If it's so difficult, if all these factors are in play, how did Joseph resist the temptation? Well, I want you to notice what Joseph didn't uh, rely on in order to have victory over temptation. Look at this. Joseph didn't rely on spiritual pedigree. He didn't come from a stable family. Did you know that? His mom had passed away. His dad was not there as he was in Egypt. His brothers hated him and would rather kill him than rescue him. He's in a pagan culture. There is no godly influence. There's no family stability that could help him, that he could rely on. Not only that, but Joseph didn't rely on spiritual resources. Now think about this. He didn't have a solid church to go to. There were no churches that he could go to in Egypt where he was as a slave. No Bible studies that he could be a part of. No prayer meetings. No retreats that he could get uh, energized and, and strengthened at. He didn't have any ministries. There was no crew or focus on the family or BSF that we enjoy. There's even no worship ministry, worship music. That's something that I love and, and, and I listen to every day. He didn't have that in order, in order to defeat temptation. He couldn't rely on spiritual resources. Joseph didn't even have a godly community. He didn't have accountability of godly friends around him. He was all alone as a slave in Egypt. No encouragement, nobody interceding for him, nobody speaking words of strength to him. What I'm saying is we can thank God that we have all these things at our disposal in the 21st century. But we can have all these things and still fall into temptation. How did Joseph resist temptation? 
Well, Joseph cultivated a strong relationship with God. And that's my point. Joseph cultivated a strong relationship with God. You see, it's not the external in the final analysis. It's the internal. It's that deep relationship with God. It's daily and consistently walking with the Lord that will determine the success of your life. And isn't that the gospel? The gospel is all about having a relationship with God through Jesus the Messiah, his work in our lives. You see, Joseph didn't have the externals, but he did have a strong internal relationship with God. You see, spirituality is personal. It's up to each individual. No one else can live out your spirituality for you. It is a personal relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know, our Christian culture has so emphasized community in this generation. And I understand the reason. The reason was because of unhealthy individualism that we used to uh, put at the forefront in the previous generation, where uh, we talked about how it was important, right, uh, to have that individual relationship with God, and the idea of community wasn't important back then, and so we turned the tables. We talked more about community, but now the pendulum has swung where we see an unhealthy uh, focus toward community as opposed to how important our individual responsibility is. And so now we have this teaching that just being surrounded by community is going to make us spiritual. And some Christians have bought into that idea that spirituality is community. And that's not true. Because spirituality is not parasitic. As Christians, we can become parasites leeching off of someone else or trying to leech our spiritual growth off the community. And that is impossible to do. Now, don't get me wrong. I thank God for the community of Christ. I thank God for the church, for spiritual resources, for spiritual help. I love the community of God. And in a real way, that community has produced an environment and a climate that's conducive for my spiritual growth. So I praise God for mentors and coaches and accountability. Uh, I praise all, uh, I thank God for all that that has encouraged me in my life spiritually, but none of these things has ever made me spiritual. Because spirituality is still about you and God. It's about your personal relationship. And I want you to see that Joseph has a relationship with God. There's evidence for it, right? In verse 9, let's, let's see it. He says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph says, I refuse the temptation, not because of anything of myself, but because I'm going to hurt my relationship with God. The focus is relationship with the Lord. Now, I want you to see how he is able to defeat temptation in his life. Number one, he wouldn't even consider the temptation. Let's look in verse 10. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused. And here's the idea, is that he wouldn't even entertain the thought Octavius Winslow, uh, one of my favorite Puritan-esque authors, talks about how the Holy Spirit controlled the mind and the emotions of Joseph. 
that the Holy Spirit controlled Joseph's mind and emotions. And he says it's because our emotions and desires get us to justify temptations. Our mind can make excuses to bow and to yield to the temptations that come into our lives. So what is the solution? The solution is to bring our mind, our thoughts, and our desires under the control of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3. You don't have to turn there, just listen. It says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. So in spiritual battle, we don't fight with weapons of the world. So what weapon do we fight with? Verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Do you see how that works? We bring all these pretensions, these arguments, these thoughts obedient and captive to the control of Jesus Christ. You see, he would not allow himself to think on these things. And we must take every thought, idea, captive to the obedience of God's word. Number two, not only would he not even consider the temptation, he wouldn't even get close to the temptation. Verse 10, And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or to even be with her. This is very important. As we have a relationship with God, we need to understand that there are things that we are naturally naturally predisposed towards, right? There are natural appetites, but there are also specific appetites that are um, that 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 uh, specifically affect us, and we need to stay away. S- someone might have a problem with a certain addiction. Some other person may uh, have a problem with another addiction that they don't really necessarily have a problem with with uh, that person's addiction. We need to understand the weaknesses, our proclivities, the buttons that can be pushed, and we need to avoid it. We need to stay as far away from it a- a- as possible. You see, all of us have a particular bent towards sins. You know, when I was younger in my 20s, I didn't live in good, uh, good area. I remember there was one place where we had mice. And I remember uh, I became almost an expert in catching mice. And I would use different traps. I would use glue traps. But I would also use the standard traps where you set it, you put peanut butter on it, right? And at night, you know, it's just so irresistible to a mouse to come and smells that peanut butter and starts licking a little bit of it. Oh, it tastes so good. You know, eats it more. And then you know what happens? Bam! That thing comes down and breaks the, the, the mouse's neck, right? Well, that's kind of, that's how temptation is in some of our lives. It, it's there to destroy us. And if we're wise, we'll understand that's a trap, right? That, that's not peanut butter. That's death. And I need to stay as far away from it as I can. Joseph wouldn't get close to the temptation. And then I want you to notice also, he calls this temptation sin. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't excuse it. You see, we can call sins by a different name, and it softens it, doesn't it? It allows us to excuse the sins that we are tempted to. We call pride self-confidence, and everybody needs to have confidence, right? We call drunkenness having a good time. We say that gossip is just telling it like it is. We 
we we say maliciousness is just just desserts for that person, and we can call idol or adultery an affair of the heart. Doesn't that sound so much better? It sounds so much more exciting and sophisticated than adultery. But we need to call sin like the Bible calls it. Joseph could have excused this as an affair of the heart. But in verse 9, you know what he calls it? He says, how then could I do such a wicked thing? He calls it a wicked thing, something that is very sinful, wickedness. And I want you to notice that here Joseph understands the consequences of sin. If he falls into the sin, he understands that there's consequences. When we realize that our relationship that we have a relationship with God, we see that sin harms that relationship with him. Look at it, verse 9. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Notice he doesn't say and sin against me or to sin against you or to sin against Potiphar, which all those things are true, but overall he says, How can I do this and sin against God? It's the relationship with God that's going to be harmed. I want, you to, I want you to see that focusing on the consequences of sin is a very positive thing in our lives. Because when we understand and think deeply, if I commit this sin, then these things will happen as a consequence. My sin will affect others. People are going to suffer. People are going to be disappointed. If I do this, I'm going to defile myself. My body and my soul will be affected. If I give in to this temptation, it's going to displease God. My relationship with God, although he loves me, right, my relationship with God is going to be affected. I will have disobeyed him. You see, when we understand what this is, it will keep us from doing it. I really believe that. And then number four, he ran away. And this is probably one of the greatest things. Verse 12, she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Isn't that beautiful? You might think to yourself, well, that's kind of overkill, isn't it? Here's this 17-year-old, handsome, well-built, strong individual, and he's running away from a little woman. You know, you might think, Joseph must have been weak. He must have been, you know, um, a wimpy to run away from a woman. But the Bible tells us the exact thing. It tells us to flee youthful lusts. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to take on temptation, to fight it like a man or woman, right? We need to realize that we're flawed human beings. When she caught his cloak and said, sleep with me, and he, he ran out of the house, that was the most spiritual thing that he could have done because we are called to flee the lusts that come into our lives. Those four things involve having a strong relationship with the Lord. You know, I love this story of Joseph because this character development, this character victory that we see in his life is something that we can have as well. We can be Rockies in our lives as we live out what God has called us to. Can I share this with you? Joseph never forgot who he was. I really believe this. I believe Joseph always remembered that divine dream of destiny, that God was going to use him in a powerful way. And I really believe that that sense of calling, and we're going to talk about calling actually next week, by the way, but that sense of calling really, really did um, purpose in his mind and heart 
to be the kind of uh, spiritual hero that we all want to be, the hero of faith. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that, Lord, the temptations that we face in our lives, that we can understand that there's victory, that there's success over those things. Lord, we thank you for the church and the community and the mentors and the encouragement and the programs that you've given us uh, uh, in our lives. But we know, Lord, that those things can bring about an atmosphere, but it can never truly um, make us spiritual. That we need to uh, make that commitment, that we need to live that out in our daily lives with you. And we thank you for all that you're going to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.